invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. It's the last book in your Bible, Revelation chapter 5, and we're going to spend some time this morning talking about the idea of the one who is worthy. We are wrapping up our series on our focus of worship this morning. We have six core values as a church that we seek to embrace and pursue, one of which is worship. And so we're focusing on that aspect very much so this year in a very pointed way and in multiple ways. We want to really focus on our calling to worship. And and part of uh, one of those uh, emphases that we're doing is uh, here on Sunday mornings as we've spent, uh, now this will be the eighth message that we have looked at this idea of worship, but but there's more to come this year. And in fact, I hope that you'll go ahead and mark on your calendars, you'll see on the slide just next, of April 28th, 29th, and 30th, where we have a a deeper still, uh, a, a weekend of worship. And I hope that you will Mark that on your calendars and make plans to spend that Friday with us and, and part of that Saturday with us and then Sunday with us. We'll have some special guests here with us to help us through that. We'll feed you. We'll feed you. We'll feed you. All right? We're going to feed you, and we hope that you'll come and be a part of that. I'm very excited about what the Lord will do in us and through us on our deeper still a weekend of worship. The title of this series has been one word, worthy. This one word gives us the reason why we must worship God. He is worthy. The Lord is worthy of every song of praise that we can sing, of every offering that we can give, of every compliment that we can offer, of every testimony that we can share. But, and I believe it's fitting to end our series on worship by looking at a scene that's going to take place in the future that shows us that Jesus is indeed worthy of our worship, and it explains to us why he is worthy of that worship. You've got your Bibles open, you've got your devices turned on, however you're going to get to Revelation chapter 5. I trust that you're there because we're going to jump right in. Look at the text of Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. John is having a vision and he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, on the inside, and on the back, the outside, sealed with seven seals. Let's pause here and understand what's taking place because it sets the stage for everything else we'll see in Revelation chapter 5. There is a scroll that is sealed with seven seals, which speaks to its importance. In that culture, when they would seal a letter or a scroll or instructions, the more seals on that scroll, the more important the contents were, and the more important it was to be received and to be read. Now, what a lot of biblical scholars have concluded is that in Bible times, when the Bible was written, a scroll that was sealed seven times would, would indicate something of such importance that it was often 
oftentimes used in the transaction of real estate. In fact, when a property would go into foreclosure, according to people much smarter than I, when a property would go into foreclosure, it would involve writing some things on a scroll. Let's suppose that we're a Jewish family living in the time the book of Revelation is written, and we come upon hard times. One of the options that we would have to get out of our hard times would be to sell some property or to foreclose on our house to pay a debt. Now, according to Jewish law, that could be done, but it could not be done forever. And so what they would do in the foreclosure of the property or in the listing of the possessions is they would take this scroll, a legal document, on the inside would be written all the assets and and everything that was being delivered. On the outside of that scroll, they would write instructions about how that property could be redeemed, about how that title deed could go back to its original owner. They would write that down, wrap it up, and they would seal it. Then what would happen as this time would pass, that scroll would remain sealed until someone came along who was able to provide the redemption of that property. For you see, on the inside of the scroll was written all the assets. On the outside was written, here's what has to be done to redeem this land. So when someone would read it, they would say, here's what needs to be done. I'm able to do that. I can redeem the land. They would break the seal and open the scroll. Now, most scholars are in agreement that the scroll in Revelation chapter 5, if you want to argue it, I can go ahead and tell you now, you find somebody else because they ain't got the time nor the desire to argue this with you, all right? So if you don't agree, that's fine. You got the right to be wrong, all right? (laughs) What most scholars would agree that this scroll is in Revelation chapter 5 is in essence a title deed, if you will, to the earth. For you see, back when God created the world, He gave to Adam and Eve as their inheritance, as their portion, the earth. You remember God placed them in the Garden of Eden. And God said, you can have everything in this garden. It's yours. This world is yours. Just stay away from this particular tree. But everything else is yours. This world is yours. I am putting you in control of this world. Adam and Eve, this world is yours. The title deed is yours. But guess what happened? Adam and Eve sinned, and one of the consequences of their sin is they forfeited their right to possess what God had given them. That's why, for example, when Jesus is having an interaction with Satan in Matthew chapter 4, and Satan says to Jesus, if you will bow down to me, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world, which would indicate that Satan had come into authority as the prince of the power of the air. Jesus never argued his authority. Jesus used scripture, but he never argued the fact 
that Satan had some kind of authority in this world. I think that somehow at least helps us understand or at least to try to make some sense of the very senseless things that happen. This world has fallen. This world is hurt. This world is fractured. This world is damaged. This world is ruined in part because of the sin of Adam and Eve, the sin that we would have committed had we been in their place. And in that sin, as a consequence of that sin, this world that God gave them, that God gave us, is no longer under our authority. Yes, God is still on his throne in heaven, but God has allowed Satan to have limited authority, to have uh, limited and quantity and quality authority on the face of this earth. So this, this scroll is the title deed to earth that Adam and Eve had forfeited and that Satan now has in his control. Look at verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Who has the right to redeem this land, to redeem this world that has been lost in sin to Satan? Who has the right to this title deed on earth? Who has the right to reclaim God's creation and to redeem what was lost through sin? According to verse 3, absolutely no one, no one. The question's asked. No one in the human race steps forward to take charge of the earth. Not a pastor, not a president, not a philosopher, not a politician, not a pope. No one. But notice that it, said, it doesn't say that no one was willing to open the book. It says no one was worthy. Oh, history is full of people who've wanted to open that scroll. History is full of people who wanted control of the earth. All the way back to, to people like that we read in our history books like Alexander the Great or, or Julius Caesar or Hitler or Bin Laden or Saddam Hussein. They've all wanted to rule the earth, but they weren't worthy. And not even the heroes of the faith are able to step up to the question. Abraham doesn't show up. Moses doesn't say, I can do it. Deborah's not able to do it. David can't answer it. Esther doesn't have the ability. Paul isn't able to open the scroll. Lydia's not able. None of the, the people who followed God most closely were able to open this scroll. Not a single person. Understand the severity of this. 
Not a single person could step forward and be worthy to open this scroll. But this scroll still must be opened. These seals must be broken. Otherwise, the purpose of God will not be fulfilled. And God's creation will forever remain broken and fallen under the limited authority of Satan. God's plan of redemption will remain incomplete unless this scroll is open. This is why John wept in verse 4. But, verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. John, stop weeping. John, you can stop crying. John, weep no more. There is someone who is worthy. There is someone who is strong enough. The Lord Jesus Christ is worthy to open the scroll. He is worthy to deal the devil his final defeat. He is able to restore what has been lost. And then they have church. Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went, this lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you rent some people for God, for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said, Amen, let it be so. And the elders fell down and worshiped. They had church. They weren't looking at their watches. (laughs) They weren't worried about what the order was. They didn't care how the song sounded. They worshiped. Let me share with you real quick this morning why he is worthy. First, 
Jesus is worthy because of who he is. He is worthy because of who he is. He's worthy because as John has this vision of this heavenly divine worship service, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. Those are all titles that point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the promised one, that is who he is. But then notice how something very interesting happens. John turns to look at the lion of the tribe of Judah, but when he turns, instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb. But not just any lamb. In fact, if you were to draw a picture of this lamb, they'd probably want you to go meet with somebody and see what you're thinking. Because this lamb had seven horns and seven eyes and seven spirits. Look, I'm not a big, big, big numbers guy when it comes to numbers in Scripture. I don't think... Every number in Scripture and every occurrence, like if it says, again, going back to my Leviticus days, if it says if there are three hairs growing out of a wart, hope you had not had breakfast yet, uh, I don't know that that number three is meant to symbolize anything, okay? I don't think every occurrence of every number means something, but I think there certainly are numbers in Scripture that have meaning. And I think in this context, I think the number seven, seven in the Bible is the number of completion or the number of perfection based upon the fact that God created the world in six days, rested on the seventh. And so we've got a group of seven in this. Just, just, let's just look at what he says here that this lamb had seven horns. Now, in Scripture, a horn was very symbolic of power, very symbolic of, of strength. So this lamb has perfect power or all power. It's what theologians call omnipotence, omni, all potency, power. He has eyes. Think about the eyes. What do eyes do? What should eyes do? The older I get, the less my eyes do this. What should eyes do? They should see. Seven eyes that see everything and have with their seeing, have perfect knowledge of what they are seeing. This lamb has perfect knowledge, has perfect wisdom because he's able to see all. He's, theologians call that the omniscience of God. Omni, all, omniscience, knowing. They have seven spirits. Wherever the Spirit of God is, the presence of God is. So when you read seven spirits, I think you're talking about the presence of God. This lamb has perfect presence. He is ever present. Theologians call that the the omnipresence of God. This isn't just any lamb. Jesus is worthy because this is the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. That is who Jesus is, and who he is makes him worthy of worship. He's worthy of worship because of who he is, but second, he's worthy of worship because of where he is. Because of where he is. You look back in verse 6. He's between the throne, the four living creatures, among the elders. That's where he saw that lamb standing. Jesus is in heaven. He's not 
in a manger. He's not on a cross. He's not in a tomb. He is ascended and exalted to heaven. Look, I like Christmas, but we don't worship Jesus as a baby in a manger. I'm humbled by the events of Good Friday, but we don't worship Jesus as a man in the process of dying. We worship a Savior who was born, who died, who was buried, but now who was resurrected and who currently is alive and well, risen and ascended, exalted in heaven. Notice that John saw this lamb standing as though he was slain. I'm no lamb expert, but lambs who were slain don't stand. They lay in a pool of blood. There's only one way a slain lamb can can possibly stand, and that is if that lamb has been triumphantly raised from the dead. You see, Jesus is between the throne. Jesus is in the midst of the four living creatures that represents all of creation. Jesus is among the elders that represent God's people. He's in the middle. He's in the center of everything that transpires in heaven. Heaven is not about getting you there for your benefit only. It's about getting you there to worship this one who is worthy because he's risen and that's where he is. So you can still preach about Easter when it's not Easter. And because he is risen, because of where he is, he's worthy of our worship. So he's worthy because of who he is. He's worthy because of where he is. And number three, he's worthy because of what he's done. Pay close attention to the end of verse 9 and verse 10. After they declare how worthy Jesus is, they say, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. As John witnesses this worship service that's taking place in heaven. Those who were worshiping Jesus mentioned three things that he's done. And those things, they say, make him worthy to be able to open the scroll to receive worship. You see, Jesus died in the place of sinners. It says, you were slain. Jesus died in our place. Jesus died as our substitute. Second Corinthians chapter 5 teaches us that God's love for us causes us to conclude that one has died for all. He's worthy because he has died in the place of sinners. He's worthy because he has the ability to redeem sinners. It says, by your blood you ransomed or redeemed people. That is the death of Jesus 
Jesus as the payment for the penalty of our sin is sufficient to redeem us from our sin, bringing us into a right relationship with the Father. You don't need anyone to be saved other than Jesus. You don't need the Southern Baptist Convention. You don't need the Baptist denomination. You don't need the Catholic Church. You don't need anyone other than Jesus to be saved because he redeems us. Jesus has the power, they declare, to transform sinners, made them a kingdom and priest. If you have a relationship with Jesus today, let me tell you what he has done. He has made you a king. He has made you a queen. And because of our royal birth, because of our new birth, and our destiny is to reign with Jesus. Believers are priests because we need no mediator other than Jesus himself. We have full access to God. Oh, the list could go on and on and on. But the point has been clearly made. We can testify with the psalmist uh, who said in Psalm 126 in verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. We can join Phil Wickham in singing, come let us worship our king. Come let us bow down at his feet. He has done great things. See what our Savior has done. See how his love overcomes. He has done great things. Oh, he has done great things. Oh, hero of heaven, you conquered the grave. You free every captive and break every chain. Oh, God, you have done great things. So we dance in your freedom. We're awake and we're alive. Oh, Jesus, our Savior, your name be lifted. High, oh God, you have done great things. He's done great things for me, He's done great things for you, and He is worthy to be worshiped because of what He's done. You see, you're going to spend your life. Worshiping someone or something. But there's only one person who's worthy of your devotion. Who he is, where he is, and what he has done are just three reasons of a multitude of reasons of why we can say with full assurance that he is worthy. Remember our definition of worship way back from the beginning of our series. Worship is our response to the presence and the activity of God in our lives. If God is not active in your life, or if he is not given the proper place in your life, you will not worship. But you can make a decision today to change that. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to pretend that there is no one else in this room but me, you, and the Lord. 
pretend that no one else is sitting around you. And I just want to ask you or just put before you a couple of things that I hope you'll think about. Again, this is in this room, it's just me, it's just you, it's just the Lord. I'm going to pose a situation. I'm going to let the Lord direct if that is your situation. Maybe your response in worship today needs to be confessing your sin to God. Repenting of that sin and trusting in the work of the Lamb of God for your salvation. Maybe that's your response that you need to make today. Maybe your expression of worship today needs to take, be to take the next step of, of baptism, which is an outward sign of an inward reality that Jesus is your Savior and through your baptism, you're publicly declaring that he is your Lord. What we started our service with, that was an act of worship. And maybe that's the response God's calling you to make. Maybe you've not gotten into the habit of giving to God after he's done so many great things for you. Or maybe you know you should. But since it's just me, you, and the Lord, and I love you as your pastor, I know the Lord loves you more than I do. Maybe you have just been stingy. And you haven't been faithful in giving to the Lord's ministry through your church. Giving is an act of worship. And if you're not giving as an act of worship, that's the next step. Maybe you need to throw your hands up and surrender to God. Or maybe you need to bow your heart in this altar in your pew and humble yourself before God. Whatever response you need to make, when you make that response to God today, you are worshiping the only one who is worthy. Will you just show him his worth today? Oh, he knows he's worthy, but will you show him by your words and actions that he's worthy? Let's bow our heads together. I'm going to pray. After I pray, we're going to stand. We're going to sing about our good father. You respond however God is leading you to respond. Father, I thank you that Jesus is worthy of our worship. And I pray now that in this time of worship, we would respond to your presence and activity in our lives. In Jesus' name.